Welcome to the like, Destiny Podcast. Okay, so you know, so we've we've covered okay, well, which laws, and we've gone well, all the law, right? We've kind of covered that, and we go, well, I mean, but is the law still allowed to still kind of be around here? You know, there's the old covenant. Maybe it still kind of is a little bit the old covenant as well as the new covenant. We've covered that. Seventy A.D. says no more old covenant. Okay, that. That is, there's a line drawn inside. You know, there's an interesting fact about that. Do you, do you know um, the high priests, they used to wear this something, something called an ephod? Do you guys know about this? Yeah? And so they wear this, this um, kind of a, a vest top. Um, it's very fashionable, all the rage. Everyone wanted to be a high priest. Um, and it has two uh, primary stones. There's 12 stones for each of the tribes. And then there was these two primary stones, uh, the umum and the thumum. Now, my pronunciation on that might be completely wildly wrong, but I don't really care. Um, so, exactly. There you go. Timo, Timo is a Jewish scholar over there. Um, but uh, they had these two stones, and it's really interesting how they worked. So it's kind of funny, actually. I, I don't know. We, we have this amazing privilege. I don't think we really realize how privileged we are that we get to speak to God every day. And that he speaks back, and that we, we really have this relationship with God. Because they didn't have that as Jews. It was a, a, a true miracle if you got to speak to God in, on an individual basis because you need to go to the priest or to the prophet or to someone else that would hear God for you and speak for you. The high priest spoke for all, um, to all of Israel for God. He, 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 he talked for God. And, and one of the things that he did was he put his, um, his garment on, his, his, uh, his, um, his, his vest thing, and it would be the yes stone and the no stone. And these stones were kind of little magical kind of stones. They're amazing. Um, so basically he would go to God and he would ask a question and he'd be like, God, will you give us victory if we fight the Canaanites? And then the yes stone would vibrate, right? I mean, this is literally how God communicated to this, this priest uh, at times. Um, and so they would literally have this, this communication with God of 20 questions. So you had to be a yes, no answer, right? If you said, God, how much should I put on this, uh, uh this bet? He'd be like, uh, right. I mean, you can't yes or no that, you know, it's like. Um, but should I marry this person? Oh, yeah, yes, no, no, so you know, I mean? you got yes, no. So it was a really like still limited way to talk to God in some ways. I'm sure you got very good at asking yes, no answers. Um, but this is how they communicate. And what's interesting is one of the most significant, the primary reason actually that this high priest had this garment and that he would ask this, these questions is for once a year, the high priest was the only person that would go beyond the veil in the temple, right? So the temple had the, um, the outer um, courts and it had the inner courts and it had the, all the different like levels. And then ultimately there would be this veil that beyond the veil was the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go there. And only once a year, only after they'd gone through all of the different rituals and sacrifices and done everything that God had asked them. Once they'd done all of that different stuff, this high priest caked in blood. I mean, the guy was wrecked. I mean, he just sacrificed dozens of animals. It was just horrendous, right? He's, Finally, he goes beyond the veil. And he actually was so dangerous, right, that they had literally a rope tied to him. And on the rope were some bells, right? And, or, well, on his, on his garment were some bells so they could hear him moving around. And he had a rope tied to him so that if the bell stopped, they knew he'd fallen over dead because God had judged him. And so they pulled the rope to get him out, right? Because you weren't allowed to go in yourself or you'd die. Um, and then you just have this big pile up of bodies, right? So you might as well have some sort of system. Um, now, what's interesting is, is the Bible doesn't really record that ever happening, but, um, so it's no big deal. I don't know. Um, right? But this is what happens. So this is a really significant thing. So when he goes beyond the Holy of Holies, he would then communicate with God in the Holy of Holies. In the presence of God, he would ask, God, have you forgiven Israel and covered all of our sin? Has our sacrifices, 
have they been sufficient? Have they been okay? Now, they started this again after the, um, the exile and they rebuilt the temple. They started this whole process again because they couldn't do it while in the ex- exile because there was no temple, right? So it was a big problem. This is why it was such a horrible thing for them to be exiled. They didn't have a temple. They, didn't, they couldn't do the sacrifices. They couldn't be right with God for a huge period of time. Then when they got back and they built a temple and everything, they all of a sudden could do this whole system again. Now, in that time period, from then until 30 AD, every single year, God said, yes, I've forgiven you. I've accepted your sacrifice. Israel is okay with me. And they record this. I mean, this is the one question a year that you ask that's really, really, really important. You bet they record this sort of stuff. What's interesting is from 30 AD until about 69 AD, 70 AD, I can't remember which year exactly. No. You bet they were lazy, right? But that's a scary answer. Every single year after they killed Jesus, no. Was our sacrifice enough? Has this process worked? No. Okay, we better be on our best behavior this year. Hopefully we don't die, right? I mean, like, that's the sort of thing you're thinking. And then when the temple is destroyed, we're done here. There is no more way to sacrifice. And this is actually quite interesting. You talk to Jews, modern Jews today, and I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating conversation to have them to go, how do you get right with God? And they're, ah, well, lots of I don't know. Because they, they can't do sacrifices, they can't go. In fact, what's interesting about um, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is that they destroyed all of the records and, and all of the Jews were killed for the most part. But all the records were destroyed. So they actually can't even have priestly lines. Jews today don't know whose tribe they are of. They don't know with accuracy what tribe they are a part of. They know I'm a Jew, but that's it. They can't say I'm of the house of Benjamin. I'm of the tribe of Judah. I'm of the tribe of Levi. The records were completely destroyed and there is no certainty to say who is and whose. Which is fascinating to me. So this whole thing, this old covenant, rendered just completely irrelevant and God really made sure this thing can't exist anymore. It can't be rebuilt. You can't even rebuild it. If you build, even if you built a temple again, you couldn't have priests. Because who do we put in charge? Who, like, we, we don't know who are the true Levites. And only a Levite can be a priest. So we've got this whole system completely done away. So we know that the, the, the law is done away with. It's, 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 it's ceased as well. So those couple of passages that maybe say it could be around, they're ceased. It's, it's done with. It's over. So then we have, um, you know, well, God gave the law. Like, you can't just throw it away. And then we find, well, actually, God didn't want to give the law. It was a concession for us who wanted the law. And then we look at the back at the beginning, and we find that God's way has always been, I don't want rules and regulations. I want relationship. I want this walking with me rather than walking according to what's right and wrong. But the big question then you have is like, well, what about Jesus? Jesus said some stuff about the law, right? I mean, so we can't just throw like, that's important, right? I mean, we listen to what Jesus has to say. And, and you know, it's true. Jesus did have some stuff to say about the law. And, and the, the, the big thing that stands out to me um, that a lot of people really want to quote quickly when you say any of this is, well, Jesus said that not one jot or tittle will pass away. A jot or tittle is like the dot of an I or a cross of the T. Not one tiny part of the law will pass away. And anyone that lowers the standard of the law will be judged severely. And you're all thinking, Phil, you're in deep crap, right? (laughs) Right? But that's what Jesus said. Exactly. He says, I have fulfilled the law. Now, there's a couple components to this. So it's really important we understand that fulfilled... Doesn't mean he, he got rid of it. 
doesn't mean that uh, it's passed away, but it does mean that it's complete, it's fulfilled. So if I was to, um, I don't know if any of you are homeowners, but if you own a house, if you've got a mortgage, okay, you sign up, you sign a contract, and your contract is, this is my house, but the bank has a good portion invested in this house, and technically it's not really your house until you pay off the bank, okay? So you've got this contract in place that says, it's kind of my house, but it's kind of also the bank's right now, and they've got some serious leverage. And you start paying the bank whatever, 500 pounds a month to start paying off that mortgage. And you've got 100,000 pounds sitting in debt and you're, you're paying it off bit by bit by bit. So you've got this contract that says, this is your house, this is the contract, this is the mortgage, this is the arrangement with the bank. One day someone knocks on your door and they go, hey, um, I was just at the bank and I was just paying off people's mortgages randomly and I paid off yours. And I uh, paid it off and the bank have given me some new paperwork and here's your paperwork saying that your mortgage is fulfilled your obligation is complete, you no longer have to pay anything at all, and the house is yours. You're welcome. Goodbye, right? I mean, how many people want that testimony, first of all? Yeah. Um, but you'd be pretty excited. You get that paper and you put it away in the filing cabinet, right? You keep that one safe. Now, banks being banks, the next month comes around and they ask you for your money, right? <laughs> so they show up and they go, right, you owe us 500 quid. Hey, Joe, grab a seat. All right, there's one there, yeah. So they show up and they go, hey, um, I need 500 uh, quid from you. And you go, wait, hold on, no, 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 right? I mean, or do you go, oh, okay, yeah, here you go, here's 500. Are you going to pay? Of course not, right? Why would you pay? It's been fulfilled. So you go and you rustle up and you find your contract and your paperwork and you go, uh, actually, guys, house is mine. You've been paid. We're done here, right? And so there's this element of the, there's, there's still value in that contract, right? Because that contract says it's mine. You don't want to get rid of it. And that contract actually says I don't need to make payments, there's still value in it, and it still has a purpose, and, and um, mortgages are still important for people that want a house, but I have one, right? And so the, the, the law it still has value. It's still there for a purpose, but it's not for you to walk in because it has been fulfilled for you. And so, you know, even then it comes into when we look at Timothy, what does it say? It says the law is good in the right context, and the context of it is it's for unrighteous people. Now, what's the unrighteous and the righteous? Again, we're not talking about people that sin and people that do good. You know, it's not about doing bad and doing good. That's not what sin and righteousness is about at all. We talked about that. Um, to be righteous is to listen to his voice and to rest in it. To be unrighteous, to be a sinner, is to go our own way and to try and do our own things, which ultimately is what? To do the law. So if you want to be unrighteous, you need the law. And this is the thing. God does not want us to lower the standard of the law. Because actually, the law points us to grace. It pushes us into grace. It, it, it makes us give up, ultimately, because we can't do it. And so there's this element of um, Jesus saying, look, don't make the law easy. That the reason I gave you the law, you asked for rules. I gave you the hardest rules I've got because I want you to understand you can't do this. You can't make the perf- the, meet the recommendations. And so you know, if I said to you, right, how are you guys doing on the Ten Commandments today? You'd be like, okay, not killed anyone. Not committed adultery today, not done this, not, oh crap, probably lied at some point, oh, kind of liked that car that someone else had and wished it was mine, or, right? You're thinking, oh, probably not that great, right? I mean, I'm sure all of us on some level have probably broken one of the Ten Commandments today. Now, if I said, okay, right, let's scratch them and let's just keep thou shalt not murder. How are you guys doing? You feeling good? I'm feeling great, right? Oh, <laughs> where'd you put the body? Um, <laughs> Right, but there's this element of like, if we start changing what's needed and what's not, 
if you start playing around with the law and going, oh, that doesn't, we don't need that, we do need this, we don't need that, then the law becomes a bit easier, right? And so you're saying, I don't want you to change the standard of the law. The law is important. We're not removing anything from it. We are keeping this law for anyone that wants to be under it. Because they need to see it's absolutely impossible. God forbid they, that we give, they ask for rules and we give them rules they can do. Right? Because then they're not going to need grace. They're not going to need me. So the law is really important. Because it pushes us into a place where we need grace. We need to walk in faith rather than in our own efforts, in our own strength. So I think when we look at that, that context of what Jesus is saying there, he's not saying, look, we should keep the law and it's great and we should keep doing it. He's saying, no, no, I fulfilled the law. But let's not throw the law away because we're going to need this for everyone that wants to do it on their own. So when people come to you and go, I want to do this and what's the best way to live and how do I live my life? And I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. You're like, here's the rules. See how you get on. (laughs) And all of a sudden you're like, ah, okay, maybe. Is there another option? Oh, yeah, I'm glad you asked. You just need to walk in faith and walk in in relationship with Jesus and just walk in the spirit. That sounds easier. It is. It's also quite hard because I quite like the rules. But it's a lot easier. <laughs> but Jesus actually had some other commentary on the law. And we'll talk about this. And we'll finish up and then we'll, we'll do some Q&A, okay? Um, but Jesus' other commentary on the, on the law is quite interesting, right? Because someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's the best law? What's the biggest law? And what did Jesus say? What do you think it is? Right? Great Jesus answer. Um, just ask questions when people ask you questions. He says, what do you think it is? And the guy says, well, I think it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, eh, that's two. No, he didn't. Um, but it kind of technically is two. But anyway, um, Jesus says, correct. That is the greatest commandment. And that sums up all of the law. And so... Obviously, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How are you guys feeling about that? Does that ever encourage you? Have you ever read that Bible verse and thought, yeah, I can do that? Never, right? Do you ever read that and go, I did that perfectly so far today? Never, ever, ever has anyone read that Bible verse and thought encouraged, right? I mean, it's just not an encouraging verse because we read it and we go, oh, crap, right? Because I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. I love him, but I mean, if I'm honest, I don't. Not every second of every day am I full in my mind, my soul, my body, and my strength. Everything I've got for love for God. And even if I am, I'm not, still not full of love for my laborers, myself. Or, you know, it's, it's not an encouraging message. Why? Because it sums up the whole law. What is the purpose of the law? To show you you can't do it. You see, we often focus on this, this greatest commandment is our goal, right? Oh, well, actually, that's what we're supposed to do. Well, in one sense, yeah, that's what Christian life should look like. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbors yourself. Absolutely, that is what it should look like. In the same way that it should look like not murdering and not committing adultery and not lying and not stealing. Of course, it should look like that. But if you put the cart before the horse and focus on that, you're going to go nowhere. And so loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul, if you pick that your number one focus, you're going to fail miserably. And you know how I know that? Because I'm a pro at it. And you know how else I know that? Because in my travels of hundreds of churches, maybe over a thousand churches, everyone I speak to that tries it fails. And you know what? The number one prayer I've come across in Christianity is fascinating. When people come forward and they they want prayer and they want um, someone to minister with them and, and, and help them, 
you know, it's not that they want prayer for healing or they want prayer for their, uh, you know, their sister-in-law that needs saved or their kid that's gone astray. I mean, that, that happens. The number one prayer I come across is I, I want to love God more. I don't know if any of you have ever felt like that. Why do you feel like that? Because you're supposed to love the God, Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you know you don't. And so we sit there going, God, I want to love you more. I, I do love you. Like, there's no question that I love you. Well, I, I know I can love you more. I should love you more. And I, I need to love you more. And the simple fact of the matter is, Jesus in this whole passage here, he's saying, look, this sums up the law. Who's the law for? The unrighteous. It's not for you. And so actually, this whole good, bad thing, I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how good it is. If it's you doing the assessment of good and bad, and if it's you trying to avoid the bad and do the good, it's only going to lead you to a dark place and to a bad place. And so actually, even the commandment, love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your neighbors yourself. If grabbed with the wrong motivation, if looked through the wrong lens, it's the most destructive thing you can do. Because it will ruin you because you can't do it in your own strength. You can't. John talks about this in his, in his first uh, letter, doesn't he? His first John in uh, verse, chapter four, he, he says, you know, we know and we believe that God loved us. I love that he says we know and believe. Something interesting in that, isn't there? Because I don't know about you, but I know God loves me. In fact, I'm pretty amazed when I find someone out there that doesn't know the message, Jesus loves you, right? We've, we've saturated the world enough with that. The problem is we've not given them enough to actually make it believable, right? So everyone knows Jesus loves you. No one believes it because they've seen Christians, um, right? But I know God loves me, but sometimes I don't know how much I believe it, right? But he says, we know and we believe that God has loved us. And then he goes on a few verses later, he says, um, in verse 19, he says, and this is how we love. It's not that we love God, it's that he loved us first. Actually, in the Greek, it's quite interesting because it just says, it's not that we love, it's that God is love first. It doesn't even have a direction. It's just that we cannot be love until God is love. There's this thing of just letting God be love will allow you to be love. But if you get it the wrong way around, you can't love. You can't be love. You can choose love and you can try and love in the same way that those gods could choose love. But then they frequently chose not to love. But God is love. And if you allow God to be love and to lavish that love on you, you in turn, in his image and likeness, become love. You are love. It's no longer a choice. It is who you are. It flows out of you effortlessly. This is just who I am. I am love. And John really, really gets this to the point where I love the gospel of John. It's my favorite gospel. I love, love, love the gospel of John. Um, probably not written by John, but never mind. Um, Love the gospel of John. I love just throwing these things out. You can think about these ones on your own. Um, but the gospel of John is amazing. And in it, I, I always notice this fascinating concept. Do you ever notice that Jesus has favorites? Does it ever unsettle you a little bit? Now, I'm kind of being facetious a little bit, but I'm also not. 
in the, you know, you've got Jesus. He's got the, the 500 that saw him after he ascended. So you have these 500 people that were following him. But they only had the 120 that were hanging around. So that was like kind of a smaller group, you know, that stuck around for the upper room. There was the 72 he sent out to do miracles and signs and wonders and heal the sick and cast out demons. That was amazing. They must have been pretty close, right, to be, for God, to, Jesus to trust them to do that. I want you to go out and preach the gospel and do all that good stuff. And then you have the 12, right? The 12 disciples. When we read the, the gospels, let's be honest, we're one of the 12, right? Honestly, right? We're not one of the, the unbelievers out there that rejected Jesus. We're not the ones that put him on the cross. We're like, you know, Matthew or Peter or, you know, like John. I mean, that's, that's who we are, right? Because we would obviously be chosen. And we forget that they're actually a bunch of misfits and useless idiots. And that's probably why we actually would be one of the disciples, right? <laughs> but Obviously, these are his favorites, 12. But then we forget, well, you know, there's a whole other level of intimacy, right? There's the three. You ever notice this? There's always these three guys that get the best, right? You've got uh, John, James, and Peter, right? I mean, these guys get to do all the cool stuff, right? So one day, Jesus is kind of hanging out with his disciples, and they've had a long day. And he's like, all right. He's like, I'm just going to go up this mountain. He's like, everyone stay here. Uh, John, James, Peter, you come with me, right? They go up the mountain. And what happens, right? crazy encounter they come back the next day okay the next day they come down the mountain and uh i I don't know about you right i mean i've read enough of the gospels uh, or enough of peter in the gospels that i can imagine what peter's like coming down this mountain right peter is coming down this mountain and he's like his chest is puffed out he's got a strut going on he's coming down the mountain he's like oh hey guys how was your evening oh good yeah you just sat around the campfire ate some fish and bread just chilled oh that sounds lovely no, we had a pretty chill evening too. Yeah, there was um, a couple people uh, we met while we were up there. Um, there was this guy. You might have heard of him in your Bible, Moses. He was there. Yeah. There was this other guy, Elijah. Yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. You know, we, we're good buddies now, me and Elijah. Yeah, yeah, he's really cool. He's not as, you know, the book just really doesn't explain how cool he is. But <laughs> you had to be there. And, uh, and, oh, did you notice Jesus is glowing like a light bulb? Um, yeah, that's because who else? John, who was there? What was this guy's name? Oh, yeah, God. God was there. God showed up on the mountain and we were there. How was your evening? Right? I mean, you got to be. Can you imagine being the other disciples? You would be like, how come? He just didn't ask all 12 of us to go hang out with God, Elijah, and Moses. I mean, are you freaking kidding me? Right? You'd be so mad. I'd be so, so mad. But for some reason, these three, they get to do the cool stuff. And then a little later on in the book, you know, you've got Jesus and he's doing some miracles and different stuff. And a guy shows up and he's like, my daughter's dying. You know, she's going to be die if you don't come soon. And he goes as slow as possible, obviously. And she dies. Um, and <laughs> so the guy was right. Um, but then he gets there. and He's like, no, she's not dying, dad. She's sleeping, you know, and everyone's like, this guy's insane. But then he goes in. And he's like, all right. He's like, now everyone wait here. Uh, Peter, James, John, you can come in. What? Right. Can you can you seriously not do that? You, you got to be thinking of like, you know, like. Bartholomew and Philip, these guys are going like, how can we never get picked, right? I mean, Bartholomew is going, people don't even remember I exist, right? I mean, he's like, I got martyred. I was a disciple. Like, no one remembers me. But Peter, James, and John, they get to do all the cool stuff, right? And so the next thing you know, you see this, this young girl run out of there looking half dead. And she's running out going, has anyone got any food? And then you know who comes out next. Peter's coming out going, hey, guys, uh, did you see a girl that just got raised from the dead coming out? Yeah, I know. It was amazing. But you kind of had to be there. I won't bore you with the details. And she was dead. Now she's alive. That's basically all you need to know. Yeah, Jesus showed us how to do it. But 
I'm sure he'll show you another time. <laughs> right? I mean, can you? I mean, it's just what? How come these three keep getting all these cool encounters, right? And so, yeah, I'm kind of joking that Jesus has favorites, but there's this weird dynamic, right? He's like, these are his three core kind of group that get to do this cool stuff. But then you've got this one guy. And this one guy, this guy, he's the disciple that Jesus loves. And again and again and again in John, we see the disciple whom Jesus loves. What a guy. This guy must be serious, right? I mean, this guy must be top-level disciple. Do you know um, he's got another name uh, in the other Gospels, Matthew and uh, Mark and Luke. They've got a name for him as well. Uh, It's called John. They, They don't call him the disciple whom Jesus loves. He's called John. Oh, yeah, yeah, John. That's the guy, John. John, what's his name? Disciple whom Jesus loves, everybody. <laughs> right? I mean, John has a pretty high opinion of himself, doesn't he? It's really fascinating, isn't it? But I want to kind of just kind of camp on that because John is the one that understands it's only because he loved us that we can love. And he really grabs a hold of this message. And this is what he records in his, in his gospel. I'm the one Jesus loves. Now, do you think he's saying that Jesus doesn't love the other disciples? I actually don't think that at all. I mean, this is the John who in his gospel says that Jesus loved the whole world. And he talks frequently in his gospel of love and how Jesus loves. And so I don't think he's saying I'm loved more. I think he's just saying, I am loved by Jesus. I'm the disciple Jesus loves. He's just, he's enamored with God loves me. And, and what's interesting, actually, is he only calls himself this five times in four different passages. And each time it's contrasted with another disciple. Um, it's contrasted with Peter. And so there's this interesting dynamic that I want to show to you. That I think is interesting. And, and you know, I don't typically um, teach them the scriptures in this way. This is quite a, um, an abstract way to look at scriptures. But I think God speaks in very abstract ways. And I, and I think there is something in this if we look into it that, that John is using a phrase and, and, a, and a turn here to, to, to highlight something here. I think he is contrasting the disciple whom Jesus loved with Peter because he keeps putting them in the same situation. And so when we look at it, it first uh, appears in uh, John 13, we've got the, um, the, uh, the Last Supper. And Jesus is sitting down with his, his guys. They're all sitting there, 13 in a row. Um, and uh, I think they had to for the painting. There was a guy painting it. Um, so, yeah, so they're all sitting in the row. And uh, <laughs> so they're sitting there, Last Supper. And, you know, we, we can piece this together from all four of the Gospels have this account. And so I'll, I'll, I'll draw on what we know from all four uh, Gospel accounts to, to paint this as a nice picture, much like the 13 in a row picture. Um, but what we see is we've got Jesus, um, the disciples, they're hanging out. They're having a, a beautiful Passover meal. Um, they're celebrating a very significant time. Um, John is laying there with his head on Jesus's chest, isn't he? That's just what it records. So John is just chilling there. And, and it records very clearly, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, had his head on Jesus's chest. Um, now, in the middle of the meal, Jesus decides to ruin the whole vibe, right? I mean, Jesus really does kill the buzz of the party, right? So right in the middle of the meal, Jesus kind of goes, like, grabs his glass and tink, tink, tink. You know, got a little announcement, everyone. Um, so one of you guys in this room is going to betray me and I'm going to die. I mean, talk about ruining the party. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, great. Uh, this is awkward. It's like 13 of us in here. I mean, it's like, who is it, right? I mean, everyone's kind of looking around going, one of us? Maybe it's this guy. Maybe it's the Bartholomew guy. No one knows about this guy. We've not talked about him much, have we? 
Uh, it's definitely not James, John, or Peter. They're the lucky ones. They get all the cool stuff. They wouldn't, they wouldn't screw up this gig. They get all the good stuff. Um, right, I mean, but like, they're all looking around. They're, they're, who is it? What's going on, right? And what's really interesting is um, you've got two different responses, don't you? Because Peter responds in a very interesting way. Peter immediately says, it's not me, Lord. I would never betray you. I love you too much. That's a bold declaration, isn't it? It's amazing. It's, 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 it's a great declaration. And you know what? I mean, if you'd walked with Jesus for three years and you'd seen all this stuff and he's one of the core group, right? I mean, he's, 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 he's there. I mean, this is one of Jesus' best friends. And Jesus, you bet Jesus is his best friend. I mean, Jesus is everything to this guy. You bet he feels that. And I guarantee you and me probably would have been standing there saying the same thing, right? I would never betray you. I love you so much, Jesus. How does that work out for Peter, though? I mean, within 12 hours, he's betrayed him three times, right? I mean, that's what denying him was. It was a betrayal. Not great, eh? (laughs) Now, in the same breath, we have, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining on Jesus's breast, on his chest. We have the first instant of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, contrasted with Peter, the disciple who loved Jesus so much he'd never betray him. So we've got a disciple whom Jesus loves and a disciple who loves Jesus. Disciple who loves Jesus, what happened? He betrayed Jesus. Disciple who was loved by Jesus, what happens? Well, John is the only one that historically, um, through um, the Passion account and different things like that, we we have um, pretty good historical records. It's not biblical records, so we can't grab a hold of it as biblical truth but i think there's enough record there that suggests at least uh um traditionally that john stayed with jesus throughout the whole account very closely he followed the trial closely he was there the whole way through which is fascinating because um that's a very stark response to a guy that was hiding in the shadows and saying i never know him i don't know that guy and even if we discount the historical record we do know the bible says that john was the only disciple recorded to be there at the foot of the cross. And when Jesus is in his hour of his deepest, hardest need, his worst moment, he looks down at John and he goes, John, can you look after my mom? And you see the disciple who loves Jesus so much and trusts I'd never screw up because I love him so much. He's nowhere to be found when Jesus is in need, when Jesus wants someone to do something for him. It's the disciple that was resting going, I'm loved by Jesus. Jesus loves me. He's the one that can go, I can do anything for Jesus because he loves me. But there's more to it. Okay. So as we move on in that John 13 passage, it continues and one thing that we see is fascinating, really fascinating. So you've got 13 guys in a room, right? Yeah. John's head is on Jesus's chest, okay? So he's pretty close to Jesus, I'd say, right? I mean, I can't imagine it'll be much closer, right? I mean, that's pretty close. Um, now, it doesn't say he's still on his chest. Maybe he's 
sat up and he's like sitting next to him. But I presume he's sitting next to him. If he's not sitting next to him, everyone in between him and Jesus is feeling very awkward, right? <laughs> he's like, move over, James. I want my head on his chest. You know, like, I mean, I presume he's sitting next to him. I don't know. <laughs> and this is all very awkward at a meal table anyway, right? I mean, like, you're like eating your dinner and like there's like crumbs in John's hair. And it's like, John, can you like, I'm trying to eat, right? I mean, like, I don't even know. Um, What happens next is fascinating to me, though, because I'd never noticed how weird this is. Peter says, Jesus. Oh, no, he doesn't say Jesus. Sorry. He says, John. And it records, he says to the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, ask Jesus who it will be. You ever noticed that in your Bible and thought, what? Why the heck is he asking John to ask Jesus who it will be? I mean, we're talking a room of 13 people. We're talking John has his head on Jesus's chest or at least is sitting next to him. It's not as if Jesus can't hear him. Like, I mean, like, what? What? What is that about? Have you ever thought about that? And I think there's something, again, John's playing with this concept. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, John calls himself John in other parts of the gospel. I think it's very significant. When we see the disciple whom Jesus loved, we should perk up and go, is Peter there? And is there a contrast? And I see this contrast continuing of the disciple who says, I love Jesus. And the disciple who says, Jesus loves me. Both are true, but one is a much more healthy focus because one will equip the other. So the disciple who's trusting in my love for Jesus has the same problem we all have. I love Jesus so much. I'll never betray him. I love Jesus so much. Me and Jesus are good buddies. If me and Jesus being good buddies is reliant on my love for him, how close are we? I know he talks to me, but will he tell me everything? Because I love the Lord God with most of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. We know there's a gap between the love I have and the love that he requires. And so that's always going to come into our relationship, isn't it? And so you go, oh, I want to know who's going to betray him. But you go, I don't think he'll tell me. So who does he turn to? The one who goes, I'm loved by Jesus. And John's response is fascinating because it says John turned to Jesus. So maybe he was sitting next to him at this point then, or he looked up as, I don't know. And he says, who will it be? I mean, that's all John says. And Jesus goes, the guy dipping his bread. I mean, it's the weirdest, like, most non-conversation ever. It's not a big deal. Like, Peter's built this up into a huge deal in his head where he can't even ask Jesus, who's it going to be? John's response is going, hey, Jesus, who's it going to be? That guy over there. That's the whole conversation. It's not even a conversation that was to be built up. Or It's not like he was like, I'll tell you later, Peter's in the room, and I don't really like that guy. Right? I mean, it's like, he just goes, the guy over there dipping his bread. Like, Judas is like, oh, gosh, this is really awkward. Why are we having this whole conversation? <laughs> just... <laughs> Things that don't translate into the podcast. Um... <laughs> Join the school. Um, anyway, <laughs> I like speaking to the podcast people every now and again. <laughs> Seriously, join the school. Um applications for fall are open um right (laughs) um (laughs) 
Peter doesn't think Jesus will tell him. John has no doubt Jesus will tell him. Because if your relationship with Jesus is based on how much you love him, your relationship with Jesus is based on doubt. It's filled with doubt. It's clouded with doubt all the time. And again, I'm an expert in this. I've lived my life with the doubt. Because I've lived my life with my relationship with Jesus based on how much I've mustered up enough love for him. And it's great and it grows and I have more and more love for him every day, but it's still not everything I've got. And therefore, will he tell me? Uh, You bet your butt I deny him or betray him or reject him or whatever it is because I'm relying on my love. But John sees a different way. And John just speaks to him and gets the answer. Now, the next time this passage shows up, the third third time we see... um, the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, or technically the fourth, I guess, because we had the two at John 13. So we had the two at John 13, the one at the cross, Jesus um, talking with John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Peter being very absent. Um, This this third slash fourth time, um, we see John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, it's when (laughs) um, they meet uh, Mary on the road, and Jesus is raising the dead, and they meet Mary. And she said, oh, my gosh. The tomb's empty and Jesus isn't there and the angel isn't. He said that he's alive and ah, right. And then all of a sudden we see Jesus, uh, Peter, and John. They take off running. However, John records this in a very interesting way that is really quite messed up. And for, if you don't have this this context of oh, we've got the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter, there's something going on here. It just seems like a weird passage, right? Because what does it say? It says now Peter took off running first. But John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, got there first. And that's the end of this bit, this little passage. And you're like, is John just using this point to brag that he's faster at running than Peter? I mean, like, really, John? You're writing the Bible here. Like, you could really, like, I mean, this is maybe one to, like, poke fun at Peter with later, you know? Like, but seriously, you're writing the Bible. This is not the time or place to say, look at me, I'm faster than Peter. Right, but he's joking about it. Right, he's not joking about it. He's, he's bringing it up. He's saying, "Look at this." Peter set off first, but John got there first. The disciple whom Jesus loved got there first. And there's this contrast again: disciple whom Jesus loved gets there first. Disciple who loved Jesus, something's holding him back. Something's holding him back. And what's going through your head in that moment? You know, you're Peter. You've denied Jesus three times. He, he said he would. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And No, 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 I'd never do that. I love you too much. I won't do that. And you've done that. <laughs> you've got to be thinking about that a few times over the last couple of days. Um, you bet he sat on his bed looking at the ceiling thinking, oh, crap. You know, a bunch. You know, there's some sleepless nights on that one. And all of a sudden... One of the girls comes to you and goes, Jesus is alive. He's down in the garden. His tomb's empty. And your thought is, oh, I love Jesus. Jesus is alive. But you bet he's got some thoughts of, wait a minute. What's he going to say? What's he going to think? So he shot off like a rocket. Absolutely. He took off. He was first to go. 
But something held him back. And you know on that way he's running and he's thinking, I totally denied this guy like I said, he said I was. He's going to know. I mean, this guy's just come back from the dead. He's, he's, he knows, right? I mean, like, <laughs> he knows I let him down. And even if he doesn't know, he's going to find out. And our relationship is based on how much I love him. So maybe that's going to harm our relationship. That wasn't the most loving thing to do. But John, John is just thinking, Jesus, he loves me. I bet he can't wait to see me, right? John's thought is, oh, Jesus has been away from me for three days. I bet the first thing he wants to see is me. Um, You know, John is the disciple Jesus loves. He goes, ah, and he's just, he's just going, he's just running. Um, And I I don't know, you know, this is all, this is all, like I said, this is not, um, this is not scriptural, biblical hermeneutics one-on-one necessarily. I think there is stuff in this that is, is very, uh, I'm using biblical um, uh, uh, hermeneutical principles and seeing the contrast and where is this repeated and things like that. But on some levels, we're reading between the lines here. We don't know, you know, but it's sort of just something going on and we don't know, but there's something there. Um, I, mean, I just see it. I just don't know. I see it in my eyes and I just like, I think, oh gosh, like, can you imagine? Like you, you just, that tomb and, John just comes running in and Peter arrives and he's just poking his head around the corner. You know, he's just like, oh, I really love Jesus. I can't wait to see him, but I really hope he's excited to see me because I really screwed up. The last time we see the disciple whom Jesus loves is really interesting. Uh, Again, is it right at the end? It's John 21, isn't it? And the disciples are out fishing. They're doing what they do best, not catching fish. Um, and so they're doing that, and they've been out all night and not caught fish very well. Um, and so they're coming back to the shore, and they're obviously quite close to the shore because, you know, they can hear a guy that shows up on the beach and starts yelling at them, hey, try fishing on that side. And they, they're thinking, this sounds familiar. Okay, let's try it anyway. They catch a bunch of fish. Um, they get that in. And at this moment, Peter goes, hold on a minute. This is Jesus, right? I say, this is revelation. This is Jesus. And what does he do? He puts his jacket on, which is a bit weird, and jumps in the water and swims to the shore. Um, he's still not walking on water at this point, I'm afraid. Um, right? Um, maybe that was his jacket. He put his jacket on in faith. He's like, I'll walk to the shore. <laughs> I don't know. Um, or maybe it was a life jacket after the whole uh, sinking incident. Maybe he felt he needed one. Um, but he gets to the shore and he has the weirdest conversation ever with Jesus if you don't speak uh, English, if you don't speak uh, uh, Aramaic, Hebrew. Um, he, he walks on the beach with Jesus and he's, he's speaking to Jesus and Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And then he goes, but Peter, do you love me? And he's like, I love you. And he's like, feed my sheep. And he goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? I, I love you. Feed my sheep. Right? And you're sitting thinking going, what the frick is going on? Like, are these guys like caught in a glitch in the matrix? Or like, what's the, the deal here? We're just over and over and over. But actually, this is quite significant, um, especially when you look in the original text, because um, in this culture, there's many words for love. And we just have one word in, in English. And there's two words that are used here. Um, the, the first word that's used is this word, uh, philo, um, which means to... Uh, to love with a brotherly love, a, a deep compassion, a, a, a 
a family love, a love that goes, you know, it's, it's blood deep. It's really, it is amazing. Even if you fought, you love them and you're, you're with them. Um, the other word is this word agape. And agape means to love unconditionally, without flaw, with nothing. You know, just it is like, it is unfailing love. And it's a, it's a powerful love. It's the love that Jesus speaks that the Father has of us. It's the love that is recorded of God's love for us. It's agape. Um, and it's really interesting when we see this conversation with Peter and John. And a lot of people talk about, well, he says it three times because he needs to fix the three denials. Or whatever. And there's probably some significant stuff in that, the contrast between denying him three times and saying I love you three times. But actually there's something much deeper here if we actually look for it. And we see Peter and Jesus going for, um, yeah, Peter and Jesus going for a walk. And Jesus saying, hey, Peter, do you agape me? Well, what's the last thing recorded that Peter says to Jesus? Jesus, I'd never betray you or deny you. I agape you so much. That's right. The word that Jesus, Peter uses for his love for God, for Jesus, is agape. I love you unconditionally. I'll never fail you. I love you, love you, love you falls on his face. Imagine this, the first conversation you have with Jesus after he raises him, that, that, that we record, you know, I mean, there's, there's, he shows up in the upper room, he speaks to, you know, I mean, there's other times, but some reason we have no record of any conversation with him and Peter, so we don't know. The first conversation you have with Jesus after that whole incident, and he goes, hey, Peter, do you agape me? <sighs> oh, right? I mean, that, that feels like a knife in the gut. Right? I mean, that is painful. I feel crap right now. Right? I mean, don't you? Like the last thing you did was boast about how much I agape. I agape you so much. I'll never deny you. Hey, how's your agape working out for you? That's what Jesus is asking, right? Jesus is asking, how's that agape going? Do you still agape me? Uh, I'm just going to go walk back to the boat. Um, right? I'll get John for you. And what does he say? He says, Jesus, I have philo for you. He says, yeah, I love you, but not that much. That's a, a different Peter. That's a humbled Peter. That's a Peter that knows where he's at. But Jesus then goes, well, but, but Peter, do you agape me? Really? Are we doing this? Lord, uh, I have philo for you. Okay, well, feed my sheep. And he consistently, feed my sheep. He's saying, hey, that's enough for me. I'm, I'm, I, you're, you're someone that I can use. You're someone I trust. At no point does this disqualify him. And then the third time he goes, Peter, do you philo me? And he says, yes, I philo you. That's what I have for you. And he says, feed my sheep. And there's this thing of Jesus undoing this concept that we, the Trinity, need your unconditional love. I don't need your unconditional love. I'm not looking for it. And you need to stop relying on your ability to unconditionally love me. And then he says something to Peter. It's really interesting. Uh, it's John 21, 20 or so onwards. And, um, and, and it says, this talks of the way that Peter... Uh, would die. And, and that's absolutely true. But there's a much, much deeper um, thing going on here that, that ties directly with this. And he says, Peter, 
when you were young, you picked yourself up. You went where you wanted to go. You dressed yourself. and You did what you wanted to do. But when you are older, someone else will pick you up. Someone else will dress you. Someone else will take you where you need to go. And so it does. It speaks of when he's old. Someone else would take and, and, and it would be how he would die. But how much does this talk about something else here? This is saying, Peter, in your youthful zeal, your, your need to do it all yourself, you used to get yourself up and I do what I need to do and I'll dress myself and I'll do this. He's saying, but as you're maturing, you're going to get to the place where I am the one that picks you up. I'm going to dress you. I'm going to take you where you need to go. Exactly. Well, just trust in me. I'll take care of this. I'll take care of this. And you know what makes me so happy is, you know, you look at this and you just think, John got it. Like that undoes me every time. Just the thought, John, look after my mom. That is the most broken Jesus gets. There's just nothing you can't imagine on the cross after all that stuff, all the torture and pain and suffering. You've been hanging on the cross for hours and you look down and you see your mom and you just think love my mom and i'm not going to be here john can you look after her and he's there and peter isn't and you bet that ate peter up i wasn't there for jesus i wasn't with him through that process like john was i wasn't there to promise him all these different things and i didn't Love him the way I said I could. I did betray him. I did deny him. But I love reading the books of Peter. First and second Peter. In first and second Peter, he goes on eight different, I think it's actually nine different tangents, completely unrelated to what he's writing about, about how much God loves him. He just loses it. He's just completely like, wow, God loves us. Okay, you just get it. And he just gets it. And he maybe got it a year later than John or 10 years later than John or whenever he got it, but he got it. And so it just, it doesn't matter how bad it is or how good it is. It just doesn't matter because you're still going to screw up if that's how you're doing life. Is this right? Is this wrong? What should I be doing? What should I not be doing? The only question you need to be asking is, God, like Jesus said, what are you saying, Father? I'll say that. What are you doing, Father? I'll do that. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.